I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this is You Can't Make This Up. You Can't Make This Up is the podcast where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. On today's episode, we take another look at the show we can't stop talking about, Cheer Season 2. That's all you can do. You're holding your hands down as if that won't score high than 95% of this competition. It still will. Last time, we spoke with Trinity Valley Community College coach Vontae Johnson. Today, we go behind the camera to talk with Cheer director Greg Whiteley. Greg was there as a scrappy underdog cheer squad and their inspiring leader worked hard to recapture a national championship. The result? The Emmy-winning docuseries Cheer. This season, he expands his focus to include another scrappy underdog cheer squad and their inspiring leaders working hard to recapture their own national championship. By following both fan-favorite Navarro College and their rivals at TVCC, Greg was assured to capture, as the saying goes, both the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. Navarro even slips up for a second or doesn't train hard this year. Trinity Valley is right there to snatch the title from them. And I'm joined by the director of Cheer, Greg Whiteley. Greg, it is such a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, Rebecca, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having me on the show. Now, anyone who follows me on Twitter or knows me in person or really has ever talked to me ever knows that I am an enormous fan of the series. And first of all, congratulations on your Emmy Awards for season one of Cheer, not only for Best Unstructured Reality Program, but your own award for directing Daytona. So I have a question. When you watch the team practice their pyramid for the 50th time, we know they did 41 run-throughs. Were you thinking, um, this is awards material. Yeah, I've seen this 50 times. Were you thinking that, like, this is what I'm going to win my Emmy for? (laughs) Uh, No. I mean, at at that stage, when you're filming um, full out after full out, uh, you're almost as sweaty as the cheerleaders. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's not only your 200th day or your 150th day in Corsicana, Texas, living out of a, you know, a hotel room and, and eating crew food, which we, we had a really great local caterer, but still it's not the same as eating at home. And all you can think about is let's make sure we're hitting our marks today because it would be horrible to go home after all of this and not have what we need to make a great show. So I would love to have said we knew from the very beginning that it would reach the kind of critical mass it reached, uh, that had it, the commercial appeal that it had. But um, I don't think anybody was thinking like that when we were making it. So I watched season one again this weekend in preparation for talking to you because uh, I am that much of a cheer nerd and if any excuse to watch it. I will watch it. I was struck because you really like highlighted this in season one by how brutal physically this sport is, you know, watching Morgan, you know, with her ribs almost fracturing, do those baskets again and again and again, you know, watching Sherbs get injured, watching that horrible fall that you capture on camera. Did you know that going in, filming this sport? We had heard that it was um, one of the most dangerous collegiate sports. In fact, the statistic that we heard was that of all the collegiate sports, 
uh, cheerleading, competitive cheer per person uh, leads all of collegiate sports in catastrophic injuries. You may get more injuries, plural, um, in other sports, but you won't have a, you, there's not another sport that has more catastrophic injuries. It since has become safer uh, by degree because uh, different governing bodies that oversee cheerleading have put in different safety measures and, and mandated uh, certain uh, certifications in order to coach cheer. Um, and from what we can tell, that has helped. Uh, it's also worth noting that in that first season that we were shooting cheer, I'm told by uh, Monica, the coach, that that was an inordinate number of injuries. Hmm. They usually don't have that many injuries. They Cheerleading is dangerous, so you're going to get some, but not as many as the year that we were filming season one. And in fact, that was true. And we filmed them during season two. We didn't see as many injuries. Yeah. In season one, they like ran out of girls to do this. <laughs> I mean, that was yeah, something they started that... <laughs> using robots who don't get injured. I had completely as, forgotten as about easily. that. Did you find, were you or your crew afraid maybe at one point of like what you'd see? Because I find myself as a viewer like, what am I going to see? I mean, like, are we going to see a bone like come out through a leg? Did you find yourself at the edge of your seat, like on the other side of the camera ever? Well, yeah, I'll tell you the thing that was interesting was... We're used to, for years before we made Cheer, we had made a few seasons of a football show called Last Chance U. Oh, I and know. We, <laughs> you, you, okay, good. Well, it's a show that we prided ourselves on on breaking new ground and getting in places that cameras would not normally be. Uh, and uh, that would could mean locker rooms, classrooms, dorm rooms, but it also could mean huddles. And as close as we could get, uh, to sidelines and to actual on-field action. And uh, so we wanted to do that. We wanted to bring that same ethic to cheer. But when you're doing it, you're, you want to do it in a way uh, these cheerleaders aren't padded up. They're not wearing helmets. And so if they were to fall and land on a camera, they would get hurt, not to mention the person holding the camera. And so it was interesting the first few days where we were filming, like how close can we get and still not, not be in the way. And I, I noticed towards the end of the year, um, it felt like we knew the routine well enough that the the camera people were almost part of the routine. Mm. They just knew they could get into places. They would stand in places. They knew the split second that they needed to move because there was a body that was going to come flying through in that space. And fortunately, uh, and I, I give all credit to uh, the great crew that we had that uh, the, our camera departments were led by Melissa Langer and Aaron Patrick, our two cinematographers, and the both of them, I think, were really, really deft at riding that line between being safe, but getting close that you can you can have the audience feel unsafe. Now, having done Last Chance, you and other great documentaries, I know that, you know, you can find incredible characters Anywhere you go, you don't have to dig deep to find somebody who is interesting. I mean, everybody's interesting. But did you have any sense just how incredibly interesting and like the kind of characters you would find in these tiny Texas towns at these tiny colleges? I had flown out to Corsicana to scout and shoot a day's worth of footage. In doing that, I met Ladarius hmm. and I met 
Gabby and Morgan. I didn't realize that Gabby and Morgan would become as interesting as they ended up becoming. But you meet Ladarius, and in the first 10 seconds you meet him, you go, oh, this guy's great. I'm not going to worship nobody. So I'm not going to make nobody feel like they have to worship me. No matter how much I call myself the queen. And the same with Monica. You, you, I, I knew 30 seconds into talking to Monica on the phone that she would be a really great person uh, to, to, to chronicle. I'm really interested in those backstories, though, because, okay, so watching season one again, <laughs> Gabby Butler's story to me is, is, is really fascinating. Everyone's stories are fascinating, but Gabby Butler's story and her story arc, her family's story, her family's capitalizing on her and her uh, her body, basically, and, her, and, and really like having her Instagram sort of be part of their brand. And I still every day, I'm not going to lie watch to see if she tags their bikini line on her Instagram. It's super very interesting what's going on there. <laughs> I think about that all the time, All too. the time, all the time. And I always look and I'm like, she's wearing the bathing suit, but not tagging them anyway. Um, when do you do those packages? Morgan's package with her grandparents, Ladaria's package in Florida, especially after he leaves the team in season two. You have to get a tremendous amount of footage talking to the families, getting a lot of backstory information and we get a whole story arc of students that we become incredibly invested in. The stakes for us aren't just for the team winning or losing. It is for a student and their arc. When do you make the choice? This is a student that we want to invest flying across the country, interviewing 10 people, getting a ton of B-roll. Is it after the season is over? It is, is it during this? Like, how does that all work? I, I've, this is a question that I'm dying to ask you. Well. Um... When you arrive at a school, say you're, you're going to be doing a, a show about football or a basketball team or a cheer team, you, you're going to have 15 to 30 to 50 volunteers to be uh, protagonists in your documentary film. And, and so you have to be judicious and you have to make decisions very quickly because you're there for a finite amount of time and you need to start right away figuring out, well, who are the people that, that you'll focus on primarily? Uh, and it's, it's the most nerve-wracking thing because you show up there and you think you kind of know. Like I, like I said, I, done a, I did a little bit of research. I knew that Ladarius would be interesting. And, and it doesn't take a genius. You show up and you can immediately, there are certain people that sort of pop. And at the end of the first day of filming, I always jot down five names. Who are the five that jumped out at me? And then I think, okay, well, let's keep looking because I'm surely not going to get it right on the first day. Mm. And there's got to be other people that I didn't notice. And so I keep, you know, an open mind. Uh, but what is weird, Rebecca, is in both Last Chance U football and in, in, in cheer, um, the, the five that I have written down on the first day have always been the four or five that we end up focusing on. Mm. And we... We embed ourselves in the school. We are a part of the team. Uh, most of these people are from around the country. Uh, when we're done with, with filming during what we would call principal photography, which is the cheer season, which for us begins, we'll begin filming sometime in January, and then it ends at Daytona in, in April. And then we've, we try and squirrel away enough money to go home with four or five of the main subjects and document what is their home life like, film them uh, with film people who knew them, old coaches, 
uh, a mom or a dad, a brother or sister, uh, a caretaker, and and try and tell their story in greater depth. But we don't do that until we've wrapped on principal photography for the most part. Sometimes if they live within driving distance, like in the case of Lexi, who lived in Houston, we'll drive home with her and and we'll film that. So my follow-up to that is, do you ever wish after you watch the finished product, do you ever wish that like, oh, there's one that I, I... I wish that I had. Because I'll tell you as a viewer, I really want to know more about Angel Rice. <laughs> like everywhere I go, I know I create good bonds, but the bonds here are different for me. Like these are my sisters and brothers. So I think I chose the right school. I'll, so I'll tell you, like, why didn't Angel Rice get more airtime? Yeah. Um, it's a really good question because we spent time with her. She is, because we had two schools. Yep. There are now two separate lists of five people that we're tracking that we think are interesting, but you don't have room to follow 10 people. If you follow 10 people, the audience's attention gets so divided that they don't care about anybody. And and that's the whole key to all of this is to have a character or two that an audience can completely empathize with and start to care what they care about. And if you don't have that, you just don't have a show. You don't have anything that they're going to be interested in. Angel is one of those people that's immediately interesting. But there were two sticking points that we found with uh, going all in on her in this initial season. The first was she was a freshman. Mm. And so she was going to be back the next year. And we have noticed that when kids are entering their final year of collegiate cheer or what they think will be their final year, there are some added stakes. Oh. A perfect example is Jada. Hmm. Uh, Jada, was this was going to be her final year at TVCC. Right. Because it's a junior college and particularly at TVCC, you only stay there at two years, maybe three years. It's very rare that they get invited back for a fourth year or fifth year because their coach feels strongly that they should move on. And so Jada had had made the decision, this is my final year. Jada had had never beaten Navarro. She had never won a championship. Uh, she had been on stage, obviously on the mat as being one of the better cheerleaders on that team, if not the best cheerleader on that team, and had been unsuccessful. And so you could feel in her this urgency, almost this manic desperation to get the team in shape for one more go at Daytona. And and that just made for a slightly more urgent, compelling storyline to follow. Angel Rice is fascinating. Her mom, uh, her family, her brother Jada, who is there, they're all great and they'll make for a great story someday. Uh, It just felt like as we were editing this and putting this together, um, we still highlight Angel. We still interviewed her mom. We still, she is a character in that show, but she doesn't get quite the same attention just because there were others whose stakes felt a little higher during this particular season. Season two starts off with the reaction to season one, which is meta. It's a super smart way to set up the documentaries. It's unbelievable. So our friends at Shutterfly want to cheer you on with a check for $20,000. <laughs> Ellie hugged me. She hugged me too. I was like, ah! Have people been coming up and ask you to do Matt talk to them? Yes. Uh, yes. I want Jerry to Matt talk us. I want, please. Yes! Yes! Let's go, Ellen! You got it! Yes! Cheer has made Monica and the cheerleaders celebrities, and in that way, your own documentary has become famous. 
So your your series is now part of the story. Is that uncomfortable for you as a documentarian that like in a meta way, you're putting pressure on yourself the same way that Monica's team now has that pressure, like we're in the spotlight and now we have to perform as a documentarian. Doesn't that mean you also now have to perform because you are also in the spotlight? Well, I think um, anybody who's ever taken a documentary film class is faced with the uh, ethical question, are your cameras impacting the reality of what you're filming? Is it changing the reality of what you're filming? Mm. And um, as you begin to think through that problem as a documentarian, I think where you are forced to arrive, or at least where I have arrived, is yes, of course your cameras are changing the reality. But if you're true to your craft, you can film this brand new reality that you're being presented with. And I just have gotten used to that. I've been doing this for 13, 14 years now. And I uh, have no problem with a boom mic being shown in the frame. I have no problem with the voice of a filmmaker behind the camera asking a question or a field producer asking a question. To me, I think that it's a healthy way of reminding the audience that you aren't watching surveillance footage. You aren't watching a scripted movie. You aren't, you aren't, um, this isn't unadulterated real life you're watching. There is a filmmaker who has a perspective and they have opinions about the world and they are the ones that are showing you this. And so you need to take everything that you're seeing with that in mind. It's healthy to keep that in mind. Now, to me, when we show up at Navarro, to shoot the second season, they are famous. And it's impossible to ignore that. It would be a lie to ignore that. And so it just is a very easy thing to film it. It would have been harder not to film it. When uh, Morgan is cast in a Buick commercial, we want to film that. When uh, different cheerleaders are, are making money on Cameo, well, well, let's just film that. I There was no intention to be meta or to be clever in that way. I was just, I was doing my job in the same way I've always done it. I shot them the exact same way I did it in season one. It just happened to be that they were famous in season two. Is that why you decided to give Trinity Valley so much airtime? I was very curious about the decision at the beginning, because of course you could not have known how it would end. No, the, I would say the decision to film them was a was an easy one. The, the two of the best cheerleading programs in the history of cheerleading are separated by thirty miles. So I, I think it would have been gross negligence on the part of me as a documentarian to not go explore that world that is just so close. Why why not go to that place? Were you worried about losing some of your audience by spending so much airtime on this other school and these other cheerleaders? No, I think the opposite. I, I, I can sympathize with people who want to catch up again with these people who are so interesting, you know, Gabby, Morgan, Ladarius, et cetera. The, these are people that you fell in love with in year one. And so you're very interested to spend more time with them. That said, We've already told their backstories. Their arcs have gone in specific directions. And like I mentioned earlier, when we're picking the five people who are just going to kind of be the focus in this next year, you want to find somebody that you can introduce that's, that's brand new. Or if you're going to focus on an old character, something has to happen to that old character to justify 
telling that story. I, I can't go back and tell you the story of Morgan again, living alone in a trailer for a while and then being rescued by her grandparents in Wyoming. You already know all that. And so I want to catch you up with Morgan. I want you to know that she's still, she's out there. She's doing well. She's got a new place. She's got kind of a life. And, and, but beyond that, if I just told you the Morgan story again, I think you'd be bored. Hmm. So Vante Johnson, you know, obviously Trinity Valley, um, Navarro is their real arch rival. I spoke to him a couple weeks ago. He said it was no big deal letting you in. He trusted you completely, but he also saw how famous they became. And he also famously does not like distractions. Was it that easy? Did he just say yes immediately? Was the phone call that easy for you? He did say yes immediately, uh, but he was also, (laughs) you could tell that he was nervous. I think for a while, it wasn't clear to him that we weren't spies sent from Navarro. I mean, that's how <laughs> that's how deep this rivalry goes. I think I honestly think in the back of his head, he thought maybe all of our cameras there was a ruse just to share trade secrets with, with Monica. It took a little while to talk him down off of that. So you make a very interesting choice that the series is split into two halves, the 2020 season and the 2021 season in the middle There's a standalone episode about Jerry Harris and his shocking arrest for child pornography and soliciting minors. Why did you make that decision to make that a single standalone episode dividing the series in half? I I don't even remember that being up for debate. This is Jerry was a huge part of season one. And if we didn't somehow account for what had happened to him, I don't think we'd be doing our jobs as documentarians. The decision to place that episode in the middle, it's just that's when it happened. When we show up to film the second season, he's still on the team. The allegations have not come to light. He's, of course, not been arrested yet. And so we are filming him as a member of the team, just as we were filming everybody else on that team. And then when we got interrupted by COVID and had to go dark as a film crew, that's later when those allegations came to light. And so when we ramped back up again to go film the conclusion of our story, we that had to be part of it. So, Greg, I have a very quick question for you. At what point in filming did you realize that assistant coach Chris Franklin was Coach Beard from Ted Lasso? <laughs> I uh, I like that show Ted Lasso a lot, uh, and it had never occurred to me until I saw it on a meme uh, that somebody my friends forwarded me. When I left the Trinity Valley, I was going to make sure someone was in place that I thought would be the next step for the program. You know, had had all the strengths that I didn't have until Monte came into play. <laughs> I, I didn't realize when I was with him how much he knew about football. <laughs> All right. So I have a couple of questions for you about craft and filmmaking that I've been dying to ask you. Um, it's not too much of a spoiler to say that COVID caused the cancellation of the Nationals in 2020. We cried for like the whole entire night. I didn't really even sleep at all. And then went to practice, turned in my uniforms and that was it. That was the end of my cheerleading career. 
We saw the reaction of the cheerleaders after all of their hard work, but you had also spent a year recording. You were also denied the ending to the series, which would be the national face-off. Did you consider ending the story there instead of, you know, putting the series together with the 2021 season as part of season two? Like, how discouraged were you? Um, I... I don't think I was, I was, it was annoying to (laughs) stop down, but frankly, there were bigger things to worry about, you know, the, the crew's health and the health of their families and the cheerleaders health and, and all of them. I mean, it just felt, it never felt like when we were stopping down that we wouldn't pick back up again. I, I didn't know when we would, but uh, no, I, I don't think uh, it would have been a very satisfying series to just submit the footage and the episodes, try and cut those together into some sort of story. You have to remember there, the whole structure of this series, everything that we shoot is leading towards this climax in Daytona. And so I think just to deny the audience that moment and just say, well, here you go, here's season two, that would have, um, would have been terrible. So I, it was, it, to me, it was never a question. You, we just simply wait until those two teams could go at it again. In season one, we heard about the iron grip that the organization Varsity has over the sport, including that you weren't allowed inside uh, to videotape the finals or any of the goings on. But in season two, you seem to have access. So what changed? Well, they uh, they did. You know, they um, and I, I've said this before. I, I they received some criticism for denying us access in season one. I think that was part and parcel to audiences, they're watching the show, they've fallen in love with these characters, they know how much Daytona means to these characters. So uh, by association, that now means a lot to an audience. And so to deny an audience the pleasure of watching these characters who they now love perform this thing that they care so much about, I can see where there was some fallout against varsity sports. But I should make it clear they are the governing body of of this particular event. They are tasked with putting it on, and it's an incredibly complicated thing to do. I mean, they've got hundreds of cheer teams there. They're all crammed there into one location over a short period of time. The last thing they need is some stupid filmmaker running around with a camera who they don't even know. I mean, honestly, the fact that they denied us access, it makes perfect sense to me. I, I get why they would do it. They watched the show, in my sense, is they they looked at it, they realized where my heart was, and and I, I if I'm being honest, the popularity of the show probably had something to do with it. But they came to us and they said, "How can we work together so that we could put this event on safely?" Uh, remember, there's a lot of cheer teams there. Work there covering one or two of these teams. There's hundreds of them there. They don't know that these other teams would want to be in a documentary. And so, well, their question to us is, how can you do it in a way that you're not filming people that don't want to be filmed? And so we worked out some parameters and they were great about it. And so in the second season, because of them, we're able to film Daytona the way I think it was meant to be filmed. So in both seasons, you have endings that you could not write. You really do. Season one, you have Navarro having a cheerleader that was injured during the final. So they had to stop the routine go back and practice for 30 minutes and you have somebody, I don't know who, filming that practice with the clock ticking, another student stepping up to learn his part of the routine so that they can go on, they win. Season two, you have TVCC making a little bit of a flub in the preliminaries. Their score is just behind. You have Navarro watching in a ballroom, TVCC watching in their cramped 
uh, like little Hampton in a hotel room. Um, and of course, they win. You could not write these endings. Where were you? <laughs> and as a filmmaker, how did you feel when you realized you had yet another ending that you could not have scripted if you tried? In second place, with a final score of 98.0708, Navarro College. And your 2021 NCAA National Champion with a 98.2292, it's Trinity Valley Community College. All right, so I physically was in the ballroom with Navarro. And uh, we had, uh, and I was with our, our field producers, Zoe and Chelsea. Uh, they, they, they were tasked, uh, Chelsea is a producer and a, a directing partner with me. Zoe was hired as a field producer. We also had uh, Claire Dudunk, Cinnamon. They were embedded with TVCC in that hotel room. And what we knew is that somebody was going to be announced a winner. And somebody was going to be, by virtue of that, the second place loser. It isn't for between these two teams, they are the two top two of the top teams in the world. And if you if you don't win first, it is a crushing defeat. So cameras are now embedded with both of them. One in the cramped hotel room, one in the ballroom. And we know whoever wins is going to go marching out to the sand where we have planted other cameras. We have a uh, um uh, a guy named Keone a good friend of mine, he's sitting in the water. He's been there for an hour shivering with a camera in the water. And we've got people on, on, on sticks waiting near the sand to film it from a second position. And then there'll be a third camera embedded. And so there's a lot going on. But as soon as the announcement comes, you feel a symphony of emotions, at least I did, uh, because we, we've been living with these people for three months. And you're, I was physically with Navarro. And so I was completely heartbroken. Mm -hmm. I was, uh, I had tears in my eyes as many of uh, the cheerleaders did. And as I left that ballroom to quickly get into position so I could film the team that would be running into the sand or running into the water, um, I'm quickly wiping away the tears from my eyes because I, well, this will be inappropriate. I don't, I don't want Vante or Franklin and, or, or Jada or the rest of these cheerleaders to think I'm sad because they won, but I was feeling heartbroken for these kids that I was just with. But as I saw them and I could see them approaching the water's edge where they were going to run in, they had this joy that reminded me of season one. And I completely got swept up into that. And so Rebecca, what I was thinking at the time is I don't ever remember feeling like this. I don't ever remember being taken quite on this roller coaster. If I can somehow edit this in a way that an audience feels this same thing, I, I don't know that I've ever, I've ever experienced this in a film. And so that's what I was thinking. Greg Whiteley, uh, you are the man behind Cheer, my favorite sports documentary of all time, and I am not alone. I cannot tell you what a pleasure it has been to meet you and talk with you. Thank you so, so much for your time. Rebecca, your questions were great. This was so fun. Thank you for having me. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to director Greg Whiteley. 
You are tweeting about cheer, and I want you to send some of those my way. I want to know who your favorite cheerleader is. Did you cry during Monica's hug it out moment with Ladarius? Did you scream at the TV to get Dee to smile? I am here for all of your takes. But if you want to hear more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, films, podcasts, and pop culture. Yep, including shows like Cheer. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review this show and share it with your friends. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And make sure to subscribe to the show to stay tuned for all new episodes. Our music is by Kelly Mack at Netflix Music Lab. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>